0: Good morning, my dear brothers and sisters. I'm excited to be with you again for another podcast episode of Where To Become One. And this week we're going to go back to Ephesians. I realize that for you Come Follow Me fans, this is coming at you late. Um, And I believe last time I mentioned I would step out of the Come Follow Me pattern for a bit and um, share a episode on Byron Katie, which is going to be a very exciting episode. But I just couldn't pass up Ephesians. I realized that in the last Ephesians commentary, I actually didn't even mention the verse that is my favorite and his. So that was kind of a flop in that regard. But in part two of Jared Halverson's unshaken podcast he discusses some verses in ephesians chapter five that are timelessly illuminating and controversial right this gets down to brass tacks marital dynamics gender dynamics family dynamics within the home that are under high debate in the year 2023 so even though this episode's coming late for Come Follow Me, I feel like it's a timeless... Um, we're going to do some commentary on some timeless verses, so I don't really feel like it's late at all. It's It might be earlier for... just really all depends on the listener and where you're at and what your needs are at the time to, for us to know how this lands. But Ephesians 5... Um, does a comparison between Christ and the church and a husband and a wife. And I want to listen to what Jared has to say about it because I feel like this comparison is really the heart and soul of a lot of what the grand design or the universal relationship formula has to offer because the formula between the relationship dynamic between Christ and the church is the same dynamic between husband and wife and even more so the pattern of interplay that per- results in birth and the pattern of interplay that results in rebirth which is essentially what these marriages tend toward are identical and I've, uh, I've said this a lot and I've said it before and I've said it in multiple other videos but to um, pull out scripture from the Bible, from the New Testament, and to hear someone else's commentary on them. I feel like this is a great launching point to again revisit this most important parallel between birth and rebirth. So let's get into it.
1: And then for most of the rest of this chapter, he will turn to relationships. I mean, some of this has been relational already, you know, stealing and honesty and so on and so, on and so forth. But the most intimate relationships, the ones that take place typically within the home, within the family, there's a real place to start living the gospel. Okay? So how are we going to do that? Verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And that's non-gender specific. We're all submitting ourselves to one another. Uh, no, you, you go first. It's, it's forbearing. It's forgiving. It's all of those things. I'll, I'll submit. I'm, I'm okay. I'll yield. And now let's get more specific gender-wise. Let's start with the sisters. wives. Submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, careful, before we get up in arms, realize that this is a step in the right direction. It's just not every step.
0: So, this is an interesting comparison, saying... The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, colon, and he is the savior of the body. Now, is that pronoun he referencing the husband or Christ? Well, per the comparison, I believe it could be referencing both. It's clear to us how Christ is the savior of the body of the church, but let's consider for a moment how could a husband be the savior of the body of the family? Well, what Christ is to the body of the church or the family of the Father, Heavenly Father, or the children of the Heavenly Heavenly Father on earth and elsewhere, what Christ is to them, he's a Savior in the spiritual plane. And here on earth in the temporal plane, husbands are saviors to their families in the way that they go to war. In the way that a husband would go off to battle in order to defend his home, his wife, and his children, he would be a savior in that regard. And also in the way that he, pro- that he provides. So the husband's main roles, according to the proclamation, On the family is to protect and provide. Well, protect we've already explained and what about to provide? So if you think about the physical body's needs and the temporal resources required to sustain the life of that body, provision is in a way saving from death. For example, if someone is on the brink of starving, And someone gives them food, that person is saved from death by the receipt of that temporal resource. There's really no difference between someone driving along a cliff road and their car gets into an accident. Now they're hanging on the edge of the cliff and somebody reaches their arm out and pulls them up off the cliff right that person hanging off the cliff is on the brink of death and the person who reaches out their arm and pulls them up saves their life well in the receipt of temporal when a person is in need of temporal resources in such a way and to such a degree that their that their physical life would end without the receipt of those resources then the person who provides those resources saves them in the exact same manner as reaching a hand over the cliff and pulling them up. Just because it happens on a daily basis and those temporal needs aren't, are, are met long before that acute point wherein the life of the physical body is threatened, still, in principle, salvation is occurring. So the provision of food, the provision of shelter, the provision of air conditioning in in the summer and heat in the winter, of clothing, of all of the temporal resources that protect a body and that provide for a body that they on a on a smaller scale, but if you, if you were to take the example to an extreme, you could see that these things save the physical body from death. And so on the temporal plane, husbands who fulfill their role of protecting and providing are saviors to the body or the collective group over which he is head in the same fashion Not like kind of the same, but in the very same fashion, that Christ is the Savior to the body over which he is head, namely his being on a spiritual plane to all of the father's children and the husband's being on the temporal plane to his children.
1: Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. And gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it might be holy and without blemish. Now the end of that's pretty powerful, but by the end, we've probably lost track of the beginning. By the end, we really are talking Christ in the church and all the, th- the things that he did. But remember, he's just using that as a metaphor. To try to teach husbands what what real covenant companionship is meant to look like. Take every verb that we saw Jesus do for the church. And husbands, figure out what the mortal equivalent of that would be toward your wife. Here's the list. Love, give yourself, ooh, there's that sweet savor of self-sacrifice again. Sanctify it, cleanse it, Make it holy, make it without blemish. Now, again, that sounds too much like church, but can I do that to my companion? Can I do that for her?
0: That's a really good question. I mean, yeah, these words we typically associate with dogma and religion. But if I'm going to answer his question, which is, can we do that for our spouse? When I think about a way in which I could sanctify or um, cleanse the spouse, I, I would think that the way in which I think about my spouse, I could do that, right? Like if I'm finding fault in a way I'm smudging my spouse, I'm making my spouse look dirty in my eyes by my criticism, by my contempt. So what if I looked at my spouse and thought, you know, she's perfect and found ways to see her perfection and to focus on and concentrate on her perfection. And when, let's say, she behaves in a way that I don't like or doesn't meet my needs or creates difficulty or frustration for me if i if i think about uh if i were to like justify her behavior i might say oh well she's tired oh well you know she's not normally like this this is a one off situation and i and i don't like label her as a villain and make her the bad guy i i i i, I credit the responsibility for that to something besides her being, right? Um, I credit it to the hunger. I credit it to the circumstance. And in, a, in that way, I'm sort of finding a way to purify her.
1: The way he puts it, that Jesus could present it to himself, that seems self-serving. Well, then you don't know Jesus. He's the one that said, if you'll lose your life, that's the only way you really find it. And so everything I did for the church, of course it came back to bless me. We're one with each other. And anything I do for the church comes back to bless me and my mission, what I'm trying to accomplish. Well, isn't it the same true within a couple, within a marriage?
0: Yes, it is. It's actually the same is true for every relationship because every relationship follows this A, B, B, A pattern where A departs and leaves and goes out to B and then it the turning point B heads back to A, so it, com- it creates this full circle. So there's this idea of rational self-interest where though we lose ourselves in the service of others, still we understand this circular dynamic and accept that it's going to come back to us. Like a farmer who plants his seeds in the field I mean, if you just stop the story there, farmer plants his seeds, you think, oh, this farmer's losing his seeds. There's a farmer who had seeds, and now he's literally getting rid of them by burying them in the earth, and if that were the end of the story, you would see a separation between the farmer and his seeds. You would see a loss. The farmer has lost his seeds. And if that were the end of the story, it would just be pure tragedy, And it's the same as when Christ asks his disciples to sacrifice and to do hard things, to give up certain things. If that's the whole picture that you see, it looks like a loss to you. It looks like a tragedy to you. But there is another half of that story. And the other half of that story, the second half, wraps the story back into one it completes the story and it officiates a return back to self, back to the one making the sacrifice. In the case of Christ and the church, what he gave up for the church does return back to him. In the case of a husband, the temporal protection and provision that he offers his wife and children does come back to him. It is designed to be that way at any rate Likewise, the submission mentioned in that verse that started off this section of Ephesians, that submission also comes back to her. And so there is this idea of rational self-interest that includes, encompasses, and incorporates individual selflessness, self-sacrifice, in that it says yes to those actions with the understanding that fruit for oneself is yielded through the process. That there is some kind of fruit, not necessarily temporal fruit, but a yielding, a production, a return on investment that does come back to the one, to the planter, to the one giving up something or submitting something To the other in the relationship in speaking about any self sacrificing for any other and that something comes back from other back to self whether you're the wife whether you're the husband whether you're Christ any relationship this principle exists That although you do give up something and if the story stopped there, it would look tragic, something does come back to you.
1: The the old saying is, happy wife, happy life. (laughs) And there's truth to that, but it can't be self-serving from the start. It can't be, ooh, I'm going to do these so-called good deeds to my spouse so she owes me. Or I'm going to really butter her up with this and then she'll do what I want no she's going to see through that wives are a lot smarter than husbands sometimes give them credit for
0: and vice versa husbands are a lot smarter than wives sometimes gives them credit for and uh, a wife you know living by the maxim happy spouse happy house still it's it's a wonderful maxim both are if one has patience in the planting and understands that giving does eventually lead to getting but you can't give to get he's going to ex- let me take just a moment and see if i can help clarify the distinction between the rational self-interest and the law of the harvest understanding that you do give up something as as if it were a seed and that you that does come back to you full circle but this there's another version of that that is shorter and manipulative in a in the sense that it it actually it isn't a full circle process it's actually It's actually a a half-circle process where a person who gives to get, to use that phrase, that I I feel like everyone has a basic understanding of what that means. But to describe it more precisely, I would say that a person who gives to get isn't really giving. A person who gives to get isn't experiencing the same experience as the farmer Uh, metaphorically or literally, because the person isn't really planting seeds. They're not genuinely giving up or sacrificing things that really matter to them. And that's why it's different, because when it really comes to, to sacrificing emotionally, spiritually, and really laying down your life for your spouse... The, the give to get spouse won't do that. They'll do it on a superficial level. They'll do it, um, they'll give up the things they don't, that don't really matter to them, that don't really count to them as sacrifice. And then they'll tally them up and then they'll present that argument to their spouse and say, Look what I did for you. Now you have to do something for me. But when it comes to doing the really hard thing, they won't actually do it. And so they actually won't yield the same ROI or return on investment as the spouse who is like Christ, who is willing to lay down their life, who is willing to sacrifice and submit to their spouse, even unto
1: death. Okay, but to, to put your companion first, to love and serve... Oh, it'll come back to bless you. You don't even have to think about that. In fact, you won't be. You'll be on to the next thought of, how do I serve my spouse more selflessly? But I also want to pause here and and think about what he is saying about the church and what he's saying about our marriages, because he's tying the two together. I mean, this is the the analogy when you took the ACT or the SCT, you had to do those, right? This is to this as that is to that. Uh, cat is to kitten as dog is to uh, puppy, right? You're figuring out relationships, and that's important, especially as we're talking about relationships here. Yeah, it,
0: it is important, and it, it sounds like such a simple and maybe silly example, but that's actually the beauty of the grand design. That's the beauty of a universal relationship pattern applicable to every act of creation. Because you can do this, dog is to puppy as cat is to kitten, with everything. You can do this, Christ is to the church as husband is to wife and as... The father is to the husband, as Christ is to the stay-at-home mom, as giver is to Christ, as receiver is to disciple, as the person who sacrifices is to husband, as the one who receives that sacrifice is to wife. You can, like in every situation where you are You can apply this formula, this one universal relationship formula that shows how a masculine giver and a feminine receiver of what? Yes, of any resource which new life requires in order to manifest into existence on any level, in any application, in any scenario that you could conceive of where a resource is exchanged from the one in possession of that resource to the one in need of the resource and a new measure of life is created. That pattern is the pattern of God with humanity, of husband with wife, of friend with friend, of philanthropist with third world country. Yes! everywhere. On the temporal plane, yes, with bananas and food and clothing and shelter and vaccinations and things which affect the physical body that come from the earth, yes, but also the intangibles. The companionship, the encouragement, the direction, the guidance, the light, the understanding, all of that intangible resource that people need. People need light. People need understanding. People need guidance. People need companionship. Because there are real needs, intangible needs, that are just as real as tangible needs. And if there's intangible needs just as real as tangible needs, then there must be intangible resources that are just as real as tangible resources. And If there's an exchange of temporal resource that creates new life, then there must be an exchange of immaterial resource that creates new life, which makes Jesus' impact on us real, though it's on the spiritual plane. It's a key. The grand design, the one universal relationship formula is a key To unlocking and once you understand it and start looking for it you can apply this sat type scenario to everything that's created it's exceptionally exciting
1: husband is to wife as christ is to the church hmm hold on to that for a moment let's start with that take that analogy and look at marriage and think of what the relationship between Jesus and the church, and how should that affect you. He goes on with that in verse 28. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. That's, uh, it's, it ends up blessing you, even though you're not trying to be self-serving. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. So there's a few more verbs we could add to our earlier list. Nourish, cherish, that means to love and to feed, to help grow. I've always loved what, President, what Sister Hinckley said about President Hinckley. She said in great gratitude, he always gave me wings. He helped me fly. He helped me rise above what I otherwise would have been. And that has always motivated me wanting to help my wife spread her wings to feed, to nourish to cherish and the best example I've ever seen is how Jesus treats all of us right? he then says in verse 31 for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife and they too shall be one flesh well, we remember that from Genesis, right? There's the marriage in Eden. Then Paul says, this is a great mystery, and we've talked about several of those in this letter, but the whole mystery of leaving parents to become one with a spouse, oh yeah, to becoming one, that's just like the earlier mystery I said, but now it's within a home, within a family. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. That's really what what I'm talking about here. Nevertheless, if you want to stick with the other side of the analogy, fine. Let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself and the wife see that she reverence her husband.
0: Now this this idea of the man and the wife becoming one flesh. okay So this is their marriage on the temporal plane being likened unto the marriage of Christ and every connecting participant, really anyone, who wants to connect with Christ, is as a bride. And let's look at this particular part of the comparison. On the physical plane, the husband and wife become one flesh. We all know what that means. We can see that with our physical eyes. And that leads, of course, to birth. Now, for every person who joins him or herself with Christ, they begin to experience rebirth. And I want to suggest that the reason why this particular comparison is so helpful is because for a person being reborn, they begin to see more and more how spiritually all things already are one. And as that person begins to see that all things and people, not just people, But people and animals and plants and the whole planet, all living things already on the spiritual plane are one because we are one with God and God is in all things and through all things, right? We couldn't believe, we couldn't understand ourselves as the bride of Christ to be one with Christ on the spiritual plane without simultaneously seeing our oneness with all other things because Christ is in and through all things, right? So I'm, I'm saying both. It's, it's the, it's the husband-bride oneness on the spiritual plane. But a reborn person starts to see the oneness of all things, the at-one-ment. They begin to see the at-one-ment of all things. Christ atoned so that we could see that. That it is that way and then as we see that it is that way we start to live into that we start to group together in communities that are bound tighter and tighter family funnels that are cinched closer and closer environmental awareness and conscientiousness that loves and respects all of the living forms and creations around us and we begin to live in unity with them more and more as we see that we are already one with them. And why do we see it? We see it through our marriage, our covenant marriage with Christ that is so much like this physical oneness between a husband and a wife, their actual bodily forms on the temporal plane is sort of the closest thing that we can see to help us understand that the the very unity and oneness that exists between God and us on the spiritual plane. You can't get any closer. It it is just as literal and the results of that unity are just as creative.
1: So Paul seems to be bouncing back and forth between the the symbolic and the literal. And I'm like, are you talking about family or marriage? Or are you talking about church? And he's like, yes, I am. They're like, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I am. I love it. Draw the two together. On the one hand, I want my marriage to look like Christ's treatment of the church. And wow, that's, that's holding me to a high standard. Christ laid down his life for the church. Yeah, that's what I'm asking.
0: Yeah, and I would say that if you want your marriage to last forever, you have to step up your treatment of your spouse to the level of Christ's treatment of the world. And bear in mind, too, that it is Christ's treatment of the world and not just of the church. The comparison is of Christ and the church because only church members who make covenants with Christ respond or reciprocate Christ's level of treatment to the whole world. Christ died for the whole world. Only those who begin to kind of in the smallest manner reciprocate that level of love with which God loved the world in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross of Calvary, they they become as spouses to God because they accept that level of love from Him and begin to reflect it. But make no mistake, that level of love was shed for all.
1: Is your marriage going to be that self-sacrificing? I mean, think about this in terms of marriage. Think about it when you're sealed and you're in the sealing in the room. And I remember Uncle Mike teaching, us, teaching me this, that you look in those mirrors and they represent eternity. That was obvious. But I, something else he said that I loved. I mean, here they are, the reflection bouncing off of each other for eternity. And you can see eternity before and eternity behind and all your ancestors and all your descendants. And you're the, you're the link Within this chain, but I remember him saying, "Look into the reflection. Isn't it beautiful?" Then he said, "But yeah, isn't there something that kind of gets in the way to have a totally open view of and let eternity extend? What's what's in the way? Oh, it's me. It's my reflection. Yeah, think about that."
0: And I would suggest that it's, you know, man is a dual being, so which half of your dual being is in the way? It's it's the, the half that Christ wants us to sacrifice and to give up through selfless service to other people. It's the ego. It's pride. It's the part of us that cares only about meeting our needs and not seeing that we're part of a whole and that. In order to truly meet our own needs we have to meet the needs of the whole. Which is why we plant seeds and why we farm on a social plane is because we understand that self and other are one. We see the marriage of all things.
1: The one thing that will keep you from seeing eternity in your marriage is by focusing on yourself. Don't you wish you could kind of do a quick head fake? and get your reflection out, out of the picture just long enough that you can come back in and really see the view of course if I look at my spouse I can see the view all the way plus the view's a whole lot better than looking at me <laughs> I wish she could say the same but then again where am I sealed? at an altar Ooh, there's the sweet savor of sacrifice what am I laying at the altar? To offer it up and not ask for anything in return. I'm putting myself on that altar. I no longer exist. Only you do. And don't worry. She's doing the same. And also
0: don't worry because the self you're putting on your the altar is your false self. It's not your true self. Your true self actually comes out and is unburied and reborn the more of the false self that you place on the altar, every bit of false self that's sacrificed on the altar of covenant relationship with Christ, i.e., which is to do the things he asks us to do, because if we love him, we'll keep his commandments, that's another shovelful of earth that gets our true buried self our pre-mortal, divine aspect of our dual-natured soul to come closer and closer to the surface. So don't worry, you're not losing anything eternal. You're just losing temporal, damning, destructive aspects of yourself and the, the liberating, freeing, eternal, lovely, joyous aspects of yourself are just getting closer and closer to the surface as you uh, do what Jared's suggesting and serve and sacrifice for the spouse to whom you are sealed over across that very same altar of sacrifice.
1: This is covenant marriage and Jesus shows the perfect example of it. But that's if we take the metaphor in this direction. If we take it in the opposite, it tells us something about Christ in the church. And it's, it's beautiful. I've sometimes asked my students, so who was Christ married to? And they're like, ooh, are we speculating? I'm like, actually, no, we're not. Give me a scriptural reference. Who was Christ married to? And it's only those who know their Ephesians 5 well that they'll be able to come and say, it's the church. And they all get disappointed like, oh, I thought we were going to get some Gnostic knowledge.
0: <laughs> I can see this happening in this class. So funny. I'm like, nope.
1: If the scriptures are silent on it, we should probably follow their cue. But when it comes to Christ and the church, that's a beautiful companionship. We saw it running throughout the Old Testament, right? Jehovah and Israel, match made in heaven. We saw Hosea acting it out to try to correct Israel from its infidelity. Well, in the New Testament, it's Christ and the church, but it's the same loving relationship. And the fact that Jesus would do anything for his covenant companion, will we do anything for him in return? We've talked about this before as we've discussed, who's your daddy? (laughs) And if Christ is the father of our covenant, then who's the mother of our covenant? The church is. Every covenant we make is in the name of Christ and through the church of Christ. Take it with the proclamation to the world. And what are, what are the roles of the Father? To preside, provide, and protect. And Jesus does all of those. He presides over our salvation. He provides for every need through his, the riches of his grace. He protects us from the consequences of sin and death. And what does the church do for us? Like any good mother, it nurtures us. I don't know of a better verb for what the church has done for me in my life such a nurturing mother she is.
0: Now, this is not normally how I view it, but the beauty of the grand design and the the universality of the relationship formula, A, B, B, A, where A is masculine or father, B is feminine or mother, and that really, you can put anybody in these roles, and what's what he's what he's bringing to light is that really Christ can be both and Christ is both. And so are we. We are both masculine and feminine. We are both father figures and mother figures at different times, in different scenarios, in relationship to different people and circumstances. So... Yes, Christ is both the perfect example of divine masculine expression and also the perfect example of divine feminine expression. And what I love about what's happening to couples in our church, couples who make and keep covenants, couples who are going like to outlast this terrible crumbling of family ties that we're seeing, The world's getting more and more digitally connected and less and less familially and socially connected. But those who are connected and stay connected to Christ via the Holy Ghost, these couples, these people are going to get more and more grounded and spiritually strong and their marriages are going to get better and their family lives are going to get better. It's going to be crazy. It's, it, it already is crazy how we're seeing that without any oppressive sort of patriarchal legal system, um, people men are still choosing marriage and family and women are still choosing marriage and family. Maybe not a lot of them, but the ones who are doing it by choice with full agency are actually becoming more and more expanded in their feminine and masculine attributes. They're becoming more like Christ, who is the perfect example of divine masculinity and the perfect example of divine femininity wrapped up into one body and the gender of that physical body makes no difference. It plays no part in the full expression of feminine traits and masculine traits divine feminine and divine masculine traits. You know, charity, submissiveness, humility, sacrifice. These are all gendered, divinely gendered traits and attributes. And so, yeah, that's it. We expand. You know, we... We are brides to Christ, but as we are intimate with deity, we develop a man-child in us. That's this image for the development of masculine traits, such as light, such as knowledge, such as power. And how do these masculine traits emerge from within our bodies? through submission to them our bodies this temporal earthly material is the bride and the ego that is part of that has to be broken up we have to become humble and broken-hearted and receptive soil and so as we can make our bodies be good brides in the way that they Are receptive to the penetrating light of God's direction through commandments and knowledge and power then we can then those same elements because we are made in God's image are kindled and grown um, through through acknowledging those traits from God it's like um, one candle lighting another candle god's candle lights our candle the the burning characteristics of masculinity in god are kindled in us reawakened but but in order for that to happen god has to reach through our body and our ego and our pride um and reach our and kindle our spirit our eternal spirit our premortal divinity that has been buried and forgotten in these bodies. And as that occurs, it's like this masculine development. Meanwhile, we're still feminine. We're still brides. It's a continuous process. It's not a once and done. And that is ultimately our the full measure of our creation, is to have fully developed feminine and masculine traits to where we are both the bride and the man-child until that man-child grows and develops into the full stature and measure of its father, Christ.
1: We also talked about the the other option. If we're not children of the covenant, then we're children of disobedience. We haven't come to the light. We're stuck in the darkness. And if I haven't chosen Christ as my father, then, well, Lucifer's always waiting in the wings, ready to claim us. I mean, he wanted to be the father from premortality on, right? But he knows that in a choice between Jesus and Lucifer, nobody's going to pick the devil. So what's he do? He hides behind his wife and hopes that we'll choose her and get stuck with him. You see, if Christ married his church, then so did the devil. The great and abominable church also known as the whore of all the earth, also known as the great and spacious building, also known as the wicked world. If we want to give names to them, Christ married Zion, and Satan married Babylon. And so, yeah, we can't be like the old Gentile us. We've got to come out of the wicked world, overcome the natural man, put it off, put off the old, put on the new, and be changed. It's tough. It's tough we got to live like mother number one while we're stuck with mother number two here in this wicked world. It's like Cinderella and the evil stepmother. But if she could do it, so could we. Come unto Christ. Hold to the church. Honor their relationship. I fear that sometimes we pit them against each other.
0: Yeah, so how is it possible to do this? What's he talking about? Mother number one to mother number two? It's it's the body, okay? The physical component of our dual-natured soul is sort it sort of belongs to Babylon, um, the the whore of the earth, the devil have sort of power over our body, our physical urges, and it's only when we can bring or let Christ help us bring our spirits, our immortal spirits, into dominion over our bodies by controlling the flesh, not eliminating it. And this is unique to our doctrine, right? That the two, the spirit and the flesh, become one. That literally the final state of affairs for resurrected, saved souls is to inhabit bodies of material, of flesh and bone. But... That is the feminine element of our soul. And the masculine element is the guiding, organizing, leadership element. And only people who come into control of their bodies um, will be resurrected at more glorified states. Those who let the flesh rule and reign them, well, unfortunately, that's sort of a, crumbling and temporal sphere, and so their their measure of dominion and glory is, is, is limited in the next life. How do we do both? We're never, we're never going to give up the feminine aspect of our soul because half of our soul is always going to be made of material form, and that is the feminine element, Mother Earth, right? Father, Son. The reason he says, you know, he says no one would ever choose Satan as their father, they would choose Christ. Well, why is that? It's because Satan is in outer darkness. He has no light. The true father figure, the, the, the thing that acts as father in all father figures, is light. It's outward flowing. It is penetrative. It is giving. Okay, the think of the sun. It sacrifices its light. It shines its light on Mother Earth all day long. It's continuous outward flowing, giving, masculine, or male-like. Okay, if procreation is the prototype of creation, then it it then out anything outward flowing. Giving is masculine, and that's how I use the word masculine is it is male-like in the creative process of procreation. Same with feminine, it is female-like. It is like the female role in the prototypical act of all of creation. So in every other act of creation where you're on the receiving end or it's inward flowing, it's gravitational, it's pulling toward as material does, right? Material form collapses. That's feminine or female-like. So yeah, that's, people aren't choosing the devil as their father because he has nothing to give. Okay, he's a taker, he's a sucker, he's an inward flowing. He rules and reigns in this material sphere. But in the spiritual sphere, like he just has nothing to give, nothing to offer. I love how Jared is really working this metaphor. He's really, and he's bouncing back and forth. You know, You can view it this way, you can view it that way, you can apply it here, you can apply it there. That's the universality of the universal relationship formula. But the real question that he's asking and, and saying about coming out of Babylon, and you know, we're never going to be totally out of the world. We're going to be in the world, but not out of it. And we're never going to really drop that fleshly element of our soul. But we got to manage it. And we manage it by letting Christ pull out of us um, this, this spiritual leadership that can then lead our soul by controlling and and guiding and being a father figure to our own body, right? Our spirit can be a father figure to our own feminine body in the way it leads and guides through commandment keeping, by disciplining, disciplining our diet, by not eating more than we should, disciplining our sexuality, living the law of chastity, There's people who can do this and there's people who can't. And the people who can are reborn and develop in knowledge and power by obedience or submission to God. And then as a result, they develop the attributes of that masculine God.
1: And say, oh, I love the gospel, but I don't like the church. Or I'd follow Jesus, but I kind of still want to hold on to the ways of the world. And no, that's forcing him into an adulterous relationship, and he refuses. Okay? There's powerful things that Jesus is teaching, or that Paul is teaching in both directions here. True.
0: Truly very powerful. I'm glad we took the time to discuss some of these things, and I'm going to end here. Loving you all. Greetings from Hawaii. I don't know if you could hear the sounds of nature in the background. It's... It's a paradise here. It's like the Garden of Eden. But glad to be with you. I hope you can find your own paradise and respite, whether in the temporal world or in the spiritual plane, in the coming week. Bye for now.